Olympic medalist and Tour de France podium finisher, Coach Bobby Julik, and Outskirts visionary, Gus Morton, invite you to put your socks on. From insightful analysis into our sport's most iconic races and racers to entertaining, educational, and actionable advice, Fizzo is an illuminating deep dive into the art and science of bike racing. Be prepared to put your socks on. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Bobby Julik, and as always, I'm here with my good old mate, Gus Morton. How you doing today, Gus? Bobby, as always, I'm really well. I've just been in a bit of a viewing party with Mitch Docker and, uh, and Taylor Finney. We watched the today's stage, Explosive. Yeah, it was a fantastic day. Nice, nice. Hey, before we start, I want to give a shout out to a very special person in my life. He turned 60 yesterday the legend Davis Finney. He was one of my heroes, and both he and Connie helped me out a lot when I was young. I actually went to the first ever Davis Finney-Connie Carpenter camp back in Copper Mountain, Colorado, in 1986. So he his birthday was actually yesterday, July 10th, which is 7-10. How cool would that have been if he was born today, 7-11? Just that would have been very cool. I mean, Mr. Seven Eleven, Mr. Cash Register, Davis Finney. Happy birthday! Happy happy sixtieth birthday, Davis. Yeah, and I uh, I turned thirty today actually, so I didn't realize that I was I'm I'm one year, uh, sorry, one day short of thirty years younger than Finney. Uh, I'm actually staying. I'm actually staying at Finney's house today. Don't don't gloss over that. It's your birthday. It is. Yeah, today. Wow. Happy birthday, Which man. I didn't realize I'm 7-Eleven. I, I, I never rode for that team, obviously, um, but was a big fan of them. Wow, 30 is a big one, bro. Are you going to go out tonight? Uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. These, uh, these podcasts are taking it out of me, so I might just lay low tonight. I'm actually, st- I'm actually with uh, staying at, at Taylor's place, Taylor Finney's place right now, so uh, we might tip one out for Davis and, uh, and, and cheers one for ourselves. All right, all right. Let's get on to the lay of the land. Uh, explosive stage. Some big moments, like some sort of big giveaways, some not so big giveaways. But before we get to the, uh, the action, let's just get a lay of the land. So today was a day of feasts with seven full meals. Cat ones, cat twos, cat threes, time bonuses. We started from Mulhouse to the ski station of La Planche de Belle which uh, has an interesting folk etymology, actually. The, the mountain took its name from the Thirty Years' War, where, according to legend, uh, some young women from the region were... They fled up into the mountains to escape the Swedish mercenaries who were coming down as they feared they were going to be massacred. Uh, and instead of surrendering, they jumped off to their deaths into the lake below. And one of the soldiers, as a commemoration of the women, etched out on a dagger the epitaph for the beautiful girls. And uh, there's now a wooden statue created by the local artists as a reminder of the legend. So there you go, a little bit of uh, mysticism tied in with the finish of today. And if you were standing on top of that mountain, it was pretty mystical up there. Stage start, Mulhouse, 17th time the tour has been there. Uh, Notable finish, Eddie Merckx in 1971 took the yellow jersey there thanks to his Maltini team's victory in the opening team time trial. It was a 160K stage. It was wet, like damp. The roads were wet. Uh, it was overcast. You know, sun poked his head out for a moment. Uh, 
And then, yeah, there was, uh, like I said, seven climbs. One notable thing which we mentioned yesterday was um, in another kind of little mysticism surrounding this stage, but all riders who have taken the yellow jersey on today's stage have worn it into Paris uh, in the three times that it's finished up here. So Wiggins in 2012, Nibali in 2014, and Froome in 2017. Froome being a twice uh, riding this stage, winning in 2012 actually, but not in 2017. Bobby... What else you got to add? Oh, what a what a what a race! You know, especially after we talked about tactics yesterday, I just that just kept coming into my mind. The entire stage was, you know, my prediction was that Bora was going to control the first sprint, the first breakaway. That didn't happen. My prediction was that Ineos was going to ride the ride the entire stage as if they had the yellow jersey. That didn't happen. I thought it was going to be much more explosive and someone would definitely stamp their authority on the race. That didn't happen. So I, I totally whiffed on this one. And it just goes to show you, you know, tactics, especially with, with the sort of stage that they had the day, having the first mountain day in the Tour de France is so tricky. Before we get to that, Bobby, before we get to that. Right. It's time for today's daily dose of Road ID Tour trivia. To play, head on over to Road ID slash TDF. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this by saying I looked into this, and I think it's a little bit of a trick question, but uh, we'll, we'll go from there. So in 1909, the first non-Frenchman won the Tour de France, hailing from which country? Go to roadid.com slash TDF to answer this question and score a chance to win today's daily prize, which is the Garmin Edge 830 cycling computer. One lucky winner will even take home a $10,000 BMC shopping spree. Again, that's roadid.com slash TDF. Man, there's some, a mixture of questions, uh, levels of difficulty in that competition, some great prizes as well. So you were saying, Bobby, today's stage didn't plan out, pan out, sorry, how you thought it would, was going to. That's for sure. How did it, how did it play out? What, what, why didn't it play out the way we thought? I have to say... The first mountain stage in the Tour de France is always tricky. I just I said that earlier. But when you wake up and you see that weather and it's not it's drizzling a little bit, you're going into the mountains, you're going into the unknown. I think a lot of guys were a little bit less motivated than than they would have been if it was, you know, beautiful weather. But that that being said, you know, that breakaway got off you know, pretty easily, actually. And it was a very strong breakaway, 14 guys. That's a big risk to let 14 guys go up the road regardless. There was a few notables in that breakaway, which was Wellens, the, the KOM leader. I think that was kind of a, a done deal. Uh, and there, there's Maurice again, Zandrio Maurice popping his head up. I mean, we've, we've mentioned, we keep mentioning this guy's name. I tell you, he's going to be, has a very good chance of being in the world tour next year, riding as well as he is so far in this tour de France. But then within poor Greipel, you know, Greipel gets into that breakaway, you know, it was a tactic. It was actually smart for him tactically, but poor guy really probably suffered a lot in those first couple climbs just to stay. And, and you got to note too, that like he went into that break, presumably to take the points on that first sprint, which should have been a shoe in, but he missed it. And Niels yeah. Pollitz hit out and then uh, and then the Wanty Group Go Burr rider just rolled him on the line. So it was kind of like a bit of a comedy in that regard that he's done all the work to get in the break. Basically just has to ride the 30Ks and then peace on out and uh, and managed to, to, to cock that up. So hard day, 
hard day for him, but smart move in the end because he got over those mountains ahead of ahead of the group Heddo and didn't have to kind of hustle to get in at the end there, right? Uh, it's better to be suffering off the front or in the breakaway than suffering off the back in the group Heddo. So good on him. We haven't really spoken much about him so far, so maybe he is starting to come around. His form is starting to take shape a little bit. Exactly. Yeah, so- a couple of... Um- uh, we had a first DNF this morning as well, and notably, I'm not sure if he DNF'd, uh, I wasn't able to, to get confirmation, but Nicholas Ede as well was out the back very early, clearly quite sick. Yeah, he was announced as a DNF, and then we also had Patrick Bevan uh, listed as a DNS today, so two less guys in the tour, and normally it's a little bit sooner that you have somebody drop out due to a, to a crash or a sickness, so... You know, these guys did what they could do, but obviously something went wrong with, with both of these guys because you never want to stop the tour. And um, I didn't hear about them crashing, but maybe maybe some sort of sickness that we never want to hear about. So, yeah, straight after that sprint that kind of surprised everybody, uh, went straight into that long kind of two-climb combination where, you know, these guys were working well together. It It looked like they had, you know, a good kind of, agreement in the group everyone you know looked looked like they were doing their their fair share of the work but that being a cat one of course there's some big kom points on the top wellens won but it looked like chicone you know tried tried going for those points and he continued to kind of go for those points throughout the stage but we'll get to that a little bit later so chicone mind you was one stage 16 of the giro this year and took the kom title so yeah, he's on ha- good form at the moment. He is absolutely saving Trek Segafredo's season so far. I mean, they are not exactly lighting it up, but this kid is definitely their savior. So good on him. So, but he he kind of blew the break apart a little bit there. I don't think Wellens was really planning on having to sprint him as hard as he had to, but they did, and it kind of blew that momentarily blew that little break apart right over the top. But luckily they once they got over the top, they waited for everybody. And that was uh that was it right then. You saw Wellens pretty quickly um he had notable support there from DeGent, who is an absolute steam engine and just was really like they were, they were riding really well together. And you notice on the next climb Degent took the points, so they kind of played the one-two. You know, Degent took the points to make sure that um, that Chioni didn't get them, and so that Wellens could kind of save himself. When and I also thought too, Wellens was riding better than he was riding yesterday um, because we saw on that last climb yesterday, right? He was he was dropped by by Tom's as soon as Tom's kind of started pressing the pace, and so yeah, I thought I thought he had a really good ride, and that was an interesting tactical battle. They've obviously committed a lot to that jersey yeah and there weren't that many points available on that on that second cat three the second climb which was a cat three there was only two points so i thought Mm. it was actually kind of smart to just totally super smart that's what i was saying like like that was a great tactical move yeah yeah and then you know they had a little bit of descent and then uh berhane from kofidis launches from from far catches catches wellens sleeping in my opinion like i don't think that you know there's no free lunches in this sport pal like you need yeah. to keep your head on a swivel for for anything. If you're not looking, there's going to be somewhere someone there ready to flick you. By flick, you know that's that's kind of a cycling term. I think that's more of a a, a word that I learned when we were in in Holland when we were ju- juniors. You know, the mm. flicker is somebody that maybe does something that goes against you or that you don't really anticipate happening. So the flicker, the flick, is a common cycling term. 
So at that point, they had about an eight-minute advantage, and Quickstep was controlling the race. So that right away told me, wow, you know, I didn't think that Philippe had a snowball's chance in hell of staying with these guys today, but I like I said at the top of the show, I expected it to be a little bit more explosive. But right then and there, they they started just you know setting pace and controlling it. Although it was at eight minutes, so they weren't doing anything massive. But to to respect the yellow jersey, you know, great job for to coin it quick step to to do that. Then we we moved into the the big uh, second cat one of the day, which was KOM number four. This was one of the strangest sprints that I ever seen for a KOM. I didn't really understand what was going on there. But again, who actually won that one? I forget now. I think that was... It was Wellens, I thought. Wellens won that. But then again, Ciccone gave him a little bit of a like a scare coming up there at the last second. But right then and there, it looked like they had agreed that Wellens was going to take the points. But then, you know, Ciccone kind of came up and, and pimped in there for a second. He seemed to be burning a couple more matches than a couple of the other guys in the group, didn't he? Well, that's the interesting thing, right? Because, you know, with 38K to go predictable move but we saw on that last little cat three or the you know third last climb but we saw thomas again in classic fashion just hit off the front and uh and with such horsepower that you're sort of like wow shit that might be the stage right there the rest of the break under kind of fall apart and slowly wanty started to ride and then wanty weren't going fast enough and we saw you know trek put bernard on the front and and all this while, we were sort of watching the brakes slowly whittle down. And as they hit that cat two, the brake disintegrated and they came back at um, and again. And then you realize as you're looking at that group and it cuts down to four towards the top of that climb, it's Wellens, it's Toons, and, uh, and, and Ciccone. And then there was one other whose name Maurice. escaped me right now. Maurice. Maurice, exactly right, who found another fantastic ride. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit. Dylan Toons, he's been in here the whole time, the snake in the grass, just laying low. And, and at that stage, right, like they'd given the break eight minutes early on and they weren't really bringing it back. The, you know, we had Movistar on the front by this stage and, uh, and the gap wasn't really coming down. So all of a sudden you're like, shit, these guys are going to be on for the win here. And then, and then pretty quickly, Zandio and then Wellens dropped away and, and we were left with, uh, with two at the front but- on that final climb. Something very interesting to note here. We said he was burning matches mm-hmm. and going for these KOMs. You know, he did win that category, the, the KOM number five. Category two was it, how they had it in the race book, but on TV yeah. it said category one. And guess what Guess what he won by winning that, that, that sprint at the top of the mountain, that KOM? What did he? Oh, he won an eight-second time bonus. Eight-second time bonus. And which came to play big factor later on, right? Which came into play big. Let's just remember that. Hold on that. Keep, keep that under your hat for a second, right? So, yeah, now, now Jumbo Visma comes to the front. It looked like they hit the Nas right at the bottom of that, that did, second, second to last climb. But then that kind of fizzled out. Movistar took over. The gap wasn't really coming down. It was still hanging around four minutes at that point. And, you know, they go over the top of that climb. They go down to the descent. I just expected... Ineos to just just ramp it up from there but big surprise first day in the mountains you never know you can never predict your condition Volt Pools who is normally like Chris Frome's head lieutenant like last guy or second to last guy in the line he was dropped right away almost straight away yeah absolutely which is a huge surprise like as you said one of the best riders and you kind of almost look at that and you're like wait is this some sort of weird tactical thing but not on a day like today today you need all all your good guys there right Right. And going back to tactics, all of a sudden that changes the entire tactic because you don't want to leave Bernal and, and Garrett 
isolated with, you know, three or four K to go on the planche de Belfi, right? So I think right there, they did a little pivot and they were like, wait a second, we're not going to be able to do what we wanted to do. And then you saw Valverde. Valverde, who was supposed to be one of the co-leaders for, for Movistar, going on the front and doing what Volt Pools normally does in the World Championship bands. You know, this I know, guy that ev- was impressive. This guy evidently lost three or four kilos right before the race, which I don't know how that's possible because that guy has transparent skin to begin with. So you would imagine that his climbing would be better, but he did not have the juice to get loose today on that on that climb at all. He went up to the front and did some pulls, but it wasn't anything spectacular. The the, the gap wasn't really coming down. And, and that peloton was big, right? Like we normally we're used to seeing one of those teams, you know, a Movistar or an Ineos, getting on the front and just instantly creating a group of ten or fifteen. But there was 30, 40 guys for a lot of that climb. Um, slowly whittled down, obviously, in that last little bit there. But, yeah. yeah, I really expected, like, with a guy like Valverde, of his caliber, on the front to obliterate that group and obliterate it really quickly. But it, was, it wasn't until Lander attacked, really, that that group finally started getting serious. F- French national champion Warren Bar- Barguil, Barguil was the first one to attack, and that just kind of seemed to be that little appetizer out there, that little carrot, and then... Then Landa, you know, went across to him. But then again, something that I haven't seen in a long time was Francis Dejou gets on the front. And normally when Landa hits the gas, he's gone. Like, you don't see him. But I don't know who that rider from Francis Dejou was that was riding for, for, for Pinot. He looked like he weighed 50 kilos. I mean, he looked like a tiny little kid. And he, he did an amazing pull there. And we know that that Pino is from that area. He lives like 20K away. So he was super motivated for the stage. You saw his name written on the road and everything like that. But that was super impressive that a rider from Francis de Joux, a team like Francis de Joux, could actually take control of the race and, and, and stifle a normally kind of game-ending attack by a guy like Landa. So there was a lot of surprises today. And we mentioned that yesterday when we were talking about tactics and giving our predictions for the stage. And, and it all came true. Like it didn't really pan out the way that you normally would. Like if, if a computer kind of analyzed everything, they probably would have gone a little bit more the way I went. But like, man, these guys changed their tactics on the fly. When you lose a teammate, that changes everything. You basically have to go to plan B and plan C. And, on and that, that was it for, uh, for Mitchelton Scott as well, right? Like uh, we saw uh, one of the Yates brothers getting dropped really early, uh, Simon Yates getting dropped at the start of that climb as well. So like a few guys that you weren't sure how they were playing it earlier on in the week, um, pretty clear that they're tired. But at the same time, as far as the GC contenders are concerned, no one lost the race, which normally on the first mountain stage of, a ra- of the Tour de France, there's one guy that takes himself out. You know, and so, you know, just has a bad day. I didn't see that. I saw the guys struggling. You know, you could definitely see that everyone was humping, humping their bike up, up that last climb. But, you know, to see Ala Philippe attacking and bossing that, that dirt section and to have Thomas come back to him, these were two guys that I had my questions about, especially on a finish like this. And they both responded and they both surprised me. So mm, yeah. I think there's everything left to fight for. I was thinking that at the end of this stage, we would have almost every question answered. 
But you know what? It's totally up for grabs still. No one lost enough time to be considered out of the GC. Sure, there was some Bardet and a few other guys lost a little bit more time than than the others, but they didn't lose minutes, right? You know, the one kind of surprise and disappointment uh, for us American fans was TJ Van Garderen getting dropped on that second to last climb. He came back through the cars right at the bottom of Planche de Belfi, and then you just knew that it was it was temporary, to say the least, right? And he wound up losing, I think, eight minutes to the winner, or what, about six minutes to to the other GC guys. So that that's a shame. But when you look back at TJ's season, you know, he was he was really on form or peaking for the Tour of California. Had a little bit of a disappointment there. Went to Colombia, trained at altitude, went to the Dauphiné, did a fantastic Dauphiné. So I think he was just burning the candle on both ends a little bit too early to be as good as he wanted to be and we wanted him to be in the tour. So it looks like that there's a question answered that you know he's going to be definitely more in that support role for Rigoberto Oran and, and Michael Woods. Yeah, and we noticed Michael Woods finishing with Iran today, so he really stepped up to the plate and filled that gap. Let's talk about the two winners. Dylan Toon, snake in the grass, as we said. Those two, uh, Ancioni, like, got down, just the two of them. Toons just went to the front and rode, and it looked like it was a bit of a, um, a, bit of a bluffing game going on there, but it, it turned out that Cioni didn't have the legs right, and, and Toons just rode him off the wheel. It was a pretty exceptional win. Well, remember, I don't think they were bluffing because that final stretch was between 20 and 24%. So maybe they were going in slow motion, but they were having to go maximum. And it looked like Ciccone had him in his sights. And then, you know, 100 meters to the finish, right? 100 meters, like that's nothing on the flats. But 100 meters going up that steep of a climb, man, that, that's a lot longer than you think it would be. So when he... He, he, he lost tried 11 to- seconds. Yeah, I mean, he totally, you know, exploded after that. But, you know, he did enough to to take the yellow jersey. And, you know, so when we're talking about outstanding performance of the day, I have to split it between those two because they they both came away. They did, both did an amazing ride and they both came away with a huge prize. Normally, when you're in a move like that, the guy that wins the stage is the only one that that really gets anything out of it. Second place, mm. you know, okay, whatever. But to have the... The guy win the stage and the guy that was with him up into the final 100 meters take over the yellow jersey is is fantastic. And they they deserve it. And again, I'll say it again, uh, you know, Trek Segrafredo has not had the best season, but all those all those things are forgotten now. When you win a stage of the, the, the Tour of Italy and win a stage of the Tour de France, or I'm sorry, and take the yellow jersey in the Tour de France, man, you're 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 not doing so bad. Exactly right, exactly right. And uh, with that, let's, uh, let's move on and hear from the superfan who's, uh, who's going to introduce our theme, Mountaintop Finishes. Up next, superfan. Hey guys, how's it going? Happy birthday, Gus. Hi there, Coach Bobby. I love the first mountain test of the tour. You just know there are going to be some very relieved, very skinny guys on the bus this afternoon, as well as some disappointed, not quite as skinny guys reevaluating and starting to dread all the climbing remaining. Let's be honest, if your skin's not transparent, you got to be worried that you got a long way till Paris with lots of uphilling on tap. Uh, Even though the gaps today were relatively small, no minutes were lost, talk about psychologically what it means for everyone that didn't look stellar at the finish and how you recover mentally if you were subpar on a day like today. I'm talking about you, Vincenzo and Romain. Mm. 
Well, you're absolutely right about these guys being skinny. And just as like a visual, turn your hand over and pinch the skin that's on the back of your hand. That is basically their skin folds everywhere on their entire body. So these guys definitely got together with their nutritionalists and, and their coaches and they plan their training and they count their calories to make sure that they don't have one single gram of extra, extra weight pulling up these hills. But the one thing that you cannot do on the first mountain stage of the Tour de France, regardless if you did lose a minute like Nibali and, and Bardet did to the other favorites, is you can't chuck in the towel because that's just one maybe misstep, sidestep that, that you have to, you can't, you got to keep the faith. You can't just say, okay, it's just going to get exponentially worse than there. You got to find that, that silver lining a little bit, stay positive, get back in the bus. Don't, don't bow your head. Make sure that you put on a good front in front of your teammates so that the morale of the team doesn't go down. Because remember, a lot of these teams have one leader. And when that one leader falters, man, the morale of the team just goes right down the drain. So you gotta you gotta rebound from that. You gotta come back and you gotta show that you're alive. And you know, at dinner that night, you gotta be positive. Say, come on, guys, I'm sorry I let you down a little bit today, but I'm gonna be stronger tomorrow. So you know, it's it's still so early. We're one weekend. We've got a bunch of mountains to come. Are these guys in their minds telling themselves, you know, I'm going to be peaking a little later. I came in maybe expecting to not be quite as sharp today, but knowing that they're going to be good later. Or are they feeling a little bit of the crunch? Like, oh, man, some of these guys look really sharp. What do you think they're – how are they reevaluating? Great point. Great point. You're absolutely right. There's some guys that knew – wait a second, the last week of the Tour de France is by far the most difficult. So I'm going to take a little bit of a gamble and maybe not be 100% ready for the, the team time trial or for today's first uphill mountain day, but I'm going to get better. And then there's other guys that maybe miscalculated and are maybe too good right now and are going to suffer at the end. So that's why I say the first mountain stage of the Tour de France, Let's let's unless the hammer is dropped and someone takes a two, three minute commanding lead. Let's, let's just cool our jets and, and wait and see what happens. But for sure, the, the guys have to stay positive. So, so who today did you see that looked like they had kind of, they might, might have timed it perfectly? Who, who in there rode, rode really well and looks good later, maybe? Super fan. I have to say all those guys, because there wasn't really that big of a difference in, in terms of time. You know, yeah, when you get to a 24% grade, half on dirt and chip and seal, you kind of got what you got. But I, I have to say, everyone's still in the game. So there's, there's nothing that you can really say or take from that besides relief that this stage is in the, in the rearview mirror. Because this probably had a lot of guys really stressed. Because now for the next couple of days until the time trial, the stages aren't that difficult. They can be controlled. I'm sure we're going to see some breakaways now that there's a, a new team in the yellow jersey. But, yeah, get through this stage, kind of lick your wounds, and focus moving forward, starting with that time trial and in the, in the big weekend next weekend. I think another interesting point there, too, is um, what, we, what we also saw was an evenly matched team situation, right? Uh, because, you know, like Movistar tried, like Yumbo Visma tried, uh, Ineos tried, like everyone sent their guys to the front and, you know, bar one or two teams, most, like everyone fared pretty well, you know, that, that bunch 
and those guys all had support um, well up there to the end. So, yeah, I think that's um, I think it's going to make for a, for an exciting third week. Another thing I want to note too is like that's one of the biggest responsibilities of a leader, right? Is to be able to lose time on a day like today, um, even if it's a small amount, and uh, and be able to turn around to their team and hold their head up high and keep morale up and and actually take responsibility and for for being a leader. And so I think that's what we'll see. You know, uh, a guy like Bardet, you know, he always fights back. So he has that ability to be very level-headed about it. Um, so we'll see, you know, we'll see what we what we see from him. Uh, I think, yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting few days. Let's, uh, let's talk more generally. Uh, thank you very much, Superfan. Bobby, let's talk more generally about... Um, about, like, mountaintop finishes. There's two... There's one thing that kind of... There's two things that really, like were interesting about today, which I think is, um, which I think really like differentiates a mountain stage from a flat stage. And, and that was the breakaway, right? Like we saw a group of 14 guys go, uh, which, you know, is obviously a massive group. But the other thing, the other side of that too is, right, like that time, we saw the time gaps, they don't come down that quickly. On a uh, on a mountain stage, right? Like the 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 break can almost go as fast as as the bunch, and they're not having to stress about being in the bunch on those sketchy downhills in the wet. They're not having to stress about feeding because they've got access to the car. So that dynamic, you know, a break goes. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be you know routinely brought back in when when compared to to to, to a flat stage. For sure. I mean, every breakaway depends on the the people in that group. And there were some very strong um, riders in that group today. And it being the sixth stage of the Tour de France, there's still some fresh guys. And, you know, I, I kind of disagree with that the gap doesn't come down fast enough because, you know, they had four minutes at the bottom of the climb. They had two minutes at the top of the climb, right? And we just stated earlier that no one really took control. No I didn't get the feeling that any team was dominant or any team could just go all in. But normally we do see that because those guys, you got to remember, those guys have been out there all day. And sure, they've been looking, looked after, they've been eating, they've been drinking, they've been maybe not uh, riding sub-threshold instead of you know having to do those little punchy efforts unless you're going for the KOM sprints. But potentially, when there is a team that just starts at the bottom with, with seven riders and their, and their leader on the wheel and just team time trials and just swings off one by one, you can take massive chunks out very quickly. When you're on the flat roads, yeah, you have a lot more guys to work in the peloton behind a break. But today, remember, there was, what, 30 guys in that group at the bottom of, of Planche de Belfi? Mm. I think it was a... a yeah, it was it, about it, 30. Yeah, it was, yeah, in the main group. Yeah, and everyone's tired. Everyone has climbed the exact same altitude meters, so... You know, without having that dominant team and that dominant rider, that's why that gap never really came down. But I was expecting it, honestly, from the bottom of Planche de Belfis. I thought it was just going to be a team time trial swap off until they they got it down to a minute, a minute and a half. Then I expected one of the the team leaders, and my prediction for today was was Bernal. But it's just, it just didn't work out, did it? No, and I think that's like, and that that's kind of exactly that 
that point is that the, the the mountain stage they can be really unpredictable. Things can happen in a second, and, and we've seen you know guys cramp in in breaks and, and lose minutes within minutes. And uh, and and then what we saw today, where a group of guys you're like ah could go either way here, and then all of a sudden you know they hang on minute forty five at the finish line. So yeah, it's uh, it, and it was like it was a pretty straightforward stage, but uh, but they're never that straightforward. Can you kind of talk through like? Just like what goes into a day like this? Like, is this this is where the training is the most different for a Grand Tour, right? This is where you found out. Yeah. To keep more on the the topic of mount mountaintop finishes, let let's just explain what goes on when you're at that last climb of the day, right? You're 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 definitely tired. You're you're definitely low in a glycogen sort of deficit situation. And the worst thing that you can do is go into the red, because once you go into the red uh, over your threshold, once you start accumulating lactic acid or lactate, then what are you going to do? There's no place to recover compared to a flat stage. You know, you, you, you go into the red on a flat stage and then you can recover on a descent. Here, you really have to keep calm. You have to ride to your limits. And today we saw a lot of guys whose limit was pretty much the same, to be honest. And you can lose mega amounts of time if you miscalculate your, your fueling on a day like today. Taking into account, this is a special day for sure. All the teams are thinking about that weight limit. So 6.8 kilos or about 15 pounds is the minimal weight for these bicycles nowadays. And not all the bikes are, are that light stock right off the shelf they're not that that light so these teams have to do some special little things to drop the weight and we're talking everything from light wheels to ceramic bearings um some guys maybe no power meter i've heard that before and as a coach you just cringe because you want that sort of data special chains minimal water and minimal food in the pockets these are all sorts of things that that add up right and And i think Something else, to, just just on bikes, like like you're talking about the weight here, and and we've seen, you know, on the flat stages, obviously everyone's riding aero bikes, um, but what I also like another interesting thing though about today, right? Like you go downhill a lot, and you you still do ride a lot of flat, and so an aerodynamic bike, right? Is like obviously the weight outweighs that, and I think that's like an interesting point. What's that line like? that crossover point where it's like it becomes all about weight and and are there guys on teams that like half switch to to, to climbing bikes and the other half keep an aero bike because they're going to be riding the front more or is that the sort of discussions that go on for sure before a stage like today they're meeting with the mechanics they're talking to the coaches to kind of come up with that overall schedule but when you when you think about it the the weight of the bike is going to vary a couple hundred grams you know 200, 300, maybe 400 grams. But that water bottle or those two water bottles that you have in your bottle are even more than that. So this is, power to weight is absolutely critical and crucial in climbing performance. But then what about the, the race radio that you have in your pocket? What about your power meter that you have on? What about all the food that you have in your pocket? You know, you're, you're, you're shaving all this, these little tiny 10 grams here, 30 grams here, 50 grams there, but then you have a kilo and a half of stuff that you don't really need. Not saying that you don't need food and water on a, on a stage like today. So these guys are constantly, you'll see them actually squirt out some of the water in their water bottles from time to time. And 
I'll, I'll admit there's some guys that obsess about it and other guys that it's like, oh, you know, whatever. But it, it, does, it does matter. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's talk about getting off the mountain, right? Because we've heard of quite a bit over, um, over the, the course of the, this tour about logistics. And, you know, if you think back to, to the, the mid-2000s, you know, and, and pictures of Lance Armstrong kind of helicoptering off the mountain, um, and then you, then you see guys, there was an incident last year where, where Chris Froome was, was descending, or maybe it was early this year, descending down uh, one of the mountains and one of the gendarmes kind of pulled him over and was like, you know, you, you can, you're not allowed to ride down sort of thing. Like, what, what's the go? What's the protocol for getting off the mountain? It sounds like it can be a bit of a free-for-all. Yeah, first and foremost, you need to think about the recovery for the next day. So on top of the mountain, there's very, it's not like you can just spin down the mountain, right? So the, the leaders normally have their soigneurs up there or the doctor that brings like a home trainer so that they can do a little bit of a warm down there. If they can get down the mountain quick enough, they'll go down to the mountain and have all the trainers set up down there. But the moment you cross that line, recovery protocol has to be key. So if you can get down in an easy way, great. If not, you better stay up there and spin down and make sure that your soigneur has all the recovery products for you because you don't want to go get stuck halfway down. And we, we've seen guys crash on descents and break their collarbones or crash on, on the descent after the race when, when all the, the people are walking out in the middle of the road. So once you get down to the bus, then, then you just have to you know, get down into that normal schedule again, right? Get in there get those clothes off as quick as you can, take a shower and just relax. But getting off that mountain is quite tricky because logistically you got so many people up there and of course they want to get down because they've been sitting out there in the sun or the rain or the wind for you know four or five hours waiting to, to see you guys ride by for a couple seconds. And you just, every second counts, I believe. And you know, having a little trick like a whistle when you're going down or uh, a towel around your neck, uh, a, some sort of hat to keep warm, because you don't want to catch a cold. You don't want to have, you know, jeopardize your, your health in any way, shape, or form. But it's, it's tricky. And sometimes those guys that actually win the stage or have the yellow jersey have to go to protocol, have to go to doping control. Often those guys are shuttled off the mountain with, with a uh, helicopter. And very often, depending on the route and depending on the transfer, they actually have, um, they beat their teammates down there. They beat the, the bus down there. But for the rest of them, taking the bus down, it's, it's not the, the most fun, fun time, that's for sure. So you're saying the, uh, the guys who get up the mountain fastest often get off it fastest as well, and then the poor bastards who have been out the ass the whole time, they come in 30 minutes later and then they've got to wait two hours longer to get off the mountain. Brutal. Pretty much. And on the subject of mountain top finishes, we have uh, Teo Gagenhart on the line here with us. He, uh, bright prospect, British talent, rides for Ineos, has had a bit of a breakout year after... I mean, I feel like you've been, he's been at the top level for ages. And, like, how old are you, Teo? Like, 24, 25? Hey, yeah, uh, yeah. Hey, guys. Hey, Bobby. Uh, thanks for having me on. Esteemed company. Uh, <laughs> I was 25 a few months ago. Um, but, yeah, I guess we were, we were racing together quite a few years ago now. And mm. uh, I did my first pro, um, yeah, high-level races when I was um 18 19 so yeah i guess we've been doing pro racing for, for quite a long time now or it feels like it for me anyway 
a relative uh, veteran. Before we jump in, before we jump into the nuts and bolts, how are you doing? How is the recovery coming after your your crash in stage thirteen of the the Giro this year? Yeah, good. Thanks, Bobby. Um, I think the recovery element's pretty much over. Um, I guess this is my first ever broken bone in a race, actually, and first time I've had to to quit a race, which was uh, was a shame. But I guess that's part and parcel of being a pro. Um, so it's been a bit of a new experience. But yeah, as I'm sure you'll know, the, the collarbone is relatively simple, and the surgery was really good. Um, everything healed up pretty fast, and yeah, I was back riding really shortly after the surgery. Um, I think it was. Four or five days later, I did a few spins already on the on the mountain bike on some gravel, kind of uh, along the canal actually in London on, on a gravel, so away from cars and stuff. So that was super nice, um, and I think because I got back into it pretty quick, nothing really kind of switched off too much, or everything was still pretty active muscle wise for for the upper body. So the rehab was pretty pretty seamless. So yeah, all good. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, talking about mountaintop finishes, I uh, kind of was thinking of you today when, you know, that's your, your bread and butter. That's where you've really excelled, especially as, you know, one of the teammates. But most recently, you've proved that you can win those uphill finishes as well. So very easy question. Do you enjoy uphill finishes? Yeah, I think so. I think especially, obviously, when you have good legs, it changes everything. Um but I think also, even when you're not in like maybe with your best form or whatever, or you're not leader and, and you're in domestique, I think when you have like a really clear plan and you have a, a big leader, which I've been lucky enough to experience already a few times in my career with Geraint, Egan and, and various other guys in the team, I think, yeah, there's something really cool about kind of just treading the bunch down, as it were, and... and uh, yeah, that, that feeling of climbing when you're really on top form and, the, you know, you're going so much slower, you take in the crowds and stuff a lot more is, is pretty cool, I think, for sure. So, yeah, yes, I guess I do. <laughs> it's got to be an amazing feeling when you're up there and you have Chris Frome or Garrett Thomas or Bernal on your wheel and you're just lighting it up. You hear over the radio that favorites are getting dropped. You know that the damage that you're 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 giving to the other teams, to the other riders, but there's got to be that point where you're at your max. You're like, I'm done. I can't do anything more. But then somehow you, you, you find that second win or that third win and you continue again. What, what is that mindset? What, because there's no certain cutoff of, Oh, I need to ride until this period because, you know, that's very, very hard to predict. But what are those little mental games that you play with yourself? Like, I can do it. I can't. I'm done. I'm not. I can go again. What, what, what sort of mental tricks do you use to get that last little bit out on the road for your team leader? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have been in situations actually where there was like a, a kilometer set even. Um, I remember last year in California on the, the climb on top of uh, Santa Barbara. The name escapes me, but um a pretty famous one uh maybe you guys can remember we we set a kilometer there just because yeah we we knew there was this one steep section a k and a half to go where where egan wanted to to light it up and i didn't know when i was going to be starting my effort but i knew where i was going to end it and i guess you adjust the the pacing accordingly and 
yeah, in the end, it was probably a bit too long in hindsight. It was like six Ks before the point I had to, to finish at that, that I started pulling. But then you just have to kind of be aware of, of your own abilities and, and pace it and, and kind of use the road as well when it's steeper. You know, you can do a bit more damage to the guys behind and, and maybe recover a little bit, try and be as, as aero as possible on the on the faster sections. But I think in terms of mind games, the best one for me is just always remembering that feeling of when you do finish your turn and you always wonder if, you know, you could have done a bit more, could you have stayed there a bit longer, could you have covered one more attack or whatever it is. And just remembering that feeling, I think, allows you to really make sure you go until the, the tank is empty. But then you also have to put it into context, maybe in, in the Grand Tour, sometimes you're not going until the tank's empty. Maybe you're doing your your job as best you can, but within the the context of, of a 21-day race and uh, making sure you don't go too deep to be there for the, the leader again the next day. So it, it's always a, an interesting one. I have a question about that too, actually. And I remember that ride. It was on Gibraltar. That was an exceptional ride. Gibraltar, uh, I remember, that's it. Yeah, I remember watching on TV and I was just like, fuck, stepped it up. You just sort of mentioned it then, you know, like you go, there's some days where you obviously you go max and, and you have that feeling of like, can I just do one more, you know, one more 100 meter block or one kilometer, whatever it is. How do you train like, and, and how does your mentality change when you're working towards a grand tour, for example, versus like a one, a one week stage race or a one day race type situation? Um, I think it's fairly similar. I think it's just a little bit more about like, fatigue resistance and and that consistency i mean i would say bobby's much more of an expert on this than me i'd be interested to hear what he says but i think for me it's just yeah thinking about the 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 overall load and and obviously you you need to have your best legs normally in the third week rather than in a week stage race maybe the key day is stage three or stage four when you're you're still relatively fresh so I guess that also kind of comes into the training planning in terms of uh, of how you approach it. And yeah, I've seen both ends of the spectrum with that really. Last year, the Vuelta was super, super tough already from stage one. And this year in the Giro, I uh, I definitely felt like I detrained in the first 10, 11 days. It was so, so easy. So it's amazing how different two seemingly similar bike races can be. Crazy that you say that you actually feel like you lost form. I remember there was a very famous American that won the Tour de France quite a few times and he actually said because his team was so good and he was never in the wind that he actually felt like he was losing condition because he was never hitting the wind because his teammates were so good keeping him out of out of harm's way that's that's pretty amazing that you could actually detrain or lose condition in a in a grand tour because on TV everyone around the world is like how do these guys do this 200k a day for 21 days with just two little rest days in between it's it's amazing but one thing that really i find interesting and you know we saw you in the amgen tour of california you know you have this this way uh kind of a reputation now that you're sitting there and you're sitting second wheel third wheel and your teammate is pulling and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, when Teo gets on the front, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. And and you just are able to launch it perfectly after your teammate swings off. Do you guys actually train doing that sort of technique at your training camps or at your altitude camps? Because it seems like you guys got it pretty dialed. It's not like, 
you can just throw that together at the last minute. Do you guys train that sort of through and off, you know, finishing on top of a 2000 meter climb? Um, I think a lot of it's communication, isn't it? I think, I think maybe more communication than legs. I think in the end, like even something like a team time trial, anyone can do it kind of not under the load of, of being at basically full capacity going as hard as you can. But then you throw yourself into that situation where you are, you know, going as hard as you can and trying to communicate or or be on the same page as however many other guys. And I guess that's when it gets really complicated. So I think one thing I've I've definitely noticed here is just the kind of real clear, not always overly complicated even, because I think that also, you know, can can make it more difficult, but just clear and and kind of um pre planned approach to the race whether that's in the pre-race meeting or even the, the week before the race kind of knowing your role and stuff already before you've even arrived on race I guess I think that makes it a lot a lot easier to to then uh to then work stuff out but yeah in, in the end you've always also got to be versatile this is this is cycling after all and it's impossible to predict what's going to happen and I guess so long as you have a rough idea of what you want to do in, in terms of the outcome then kind of working out how you're going to get there maybe and, and changing the route to get there is, is a little bit more simple once you're out on the road and in the chaos and the melee of it all. And that's it, right? Like you can train as much as you want, but in the end, racing's racing and it's never it's never what you can what you predict it to be as today's stage would attest. Teo, thank you so much, man. Uh, appreciate your time and uh, and your wise answers. <laughs> Take care, Dale. Keep doing My what pleasure, you're doing. Pal. Bobby, I noticed you were saying mate the other day on the on the podcast. I really like that. <laughs> you've uh, you've stayed a little bit British somewhere. I said hoovering yesterday. <laughs> Brilliant. My name's Teo Gagan Hart. I love put your socks on. There we go. Nice one. Teo, what a legend. I, uh, I've raced with that guy quite a bit over the years and uh, it's good to see him just continually getting better and better and also continuing to be just an absolute good dude. Um, should we talk about tomorrow? Yeah, let's talk very briefly because I think it's going to be one of those little sleepers again. Uh, you know, that typical mm. from Belfort to Chalon-sur-Saint. It's the longest stage in the Tour de France, as if they needed yeah. that. It's 230K without the 10K or the 9K neutral. So it's actually 239K. Like nice, nice. What, we didn't have enough time to, to get going. We had to do a 9K start, uh, neutral start before that. Oh my gosh. But so yeah, rude. It's going to be that breakaway, probably sprint stage. Hopefully it'll be a, a sprint stage. I don't see this as being one of those coup attempts that we talked about yesterday. But you do still have two climbs. You have two Category 4s and one Category 3. That may liven it up a little bit. The sprint is, again, towards the end of the race at 196.5. The coming into town seems to be a pretty good, safe uh, entrance into the town, but then it has a potential little pinch point there with 1.5K to go. I think it'll be very, very similar to the other day, and it all kind of depends on, when you're looking at the sprinters, who was able to get through and absorb those altitude meters and climbing better? Mm. Because 
fatigue is starting to set, set in now, right? So if you're up there, you know, maybe revving it, not in the red, but maybe revving it right to the limit a little bit, instead of being in the gruppetto and just really staying calm and staying within the time limit, I think that's going to determine, you know, the, the real sprint. The, those snappy sprints and those real sprinters, they're going to get weaker and weaker when those, those power sprinters and more resistant sprinters are going to get better and better. That being said, since it is Caleb's 20, Caleb Ewan's 25th birthday today. I picked him twice, and he hasn't won. And I said before, jamais du sens toi, I'm going to pick him one more time and say that Caleb Ewan is going to win the, the, the sprint tomorrow. Third time's a charm. That's a good call. That's a good call. Uh, Viviani for me. i got a soft spot for him. I like him. And that team's just on a roll. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty solid. And how cool was that yesterday when we had Philippe Gilbert on that he said that how happy he was for the guys at the Tour de France, even though you can better believe that he wanted to be right there next to him. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, and what a lovely dude. Uh, we've had some good guests this week. It's been fantastic. Bobby, thank you so much. Another fantastic show. Tomorrow's theme, recovery and preparation. And don't we know it, these guys are going to need that. Thank you so much for tuning in. We've got the best fans in the world, number one podcast, podcast in the world you can read about it in the new york times we're on soundcloud we're on twitter at valley news voices we're on the internet hell yeah bobby until tomorrow take care and don't forget to put your socks on you hey gus do you like t- do you like t-shirts yeah you do great i do. Would- i love t-shirts i wear t-shirts every day almost how would you like a t-shirt featuring Bob Roll riding an ostrich? I would, I, I would, I would love that. I've heard of these. I've heard of the rumor. And uh, if I could get my hands on one of those, I would do almost anything. Because you, you actually called Bob Roll out as being a style icon, if I remember correctly, right? Dude, he is a style icon. Forget about it. There you go. There you go. So if you ever wanted a t-shirt featuring Bob Roll riding an ostrich... Go to roadid.com for their limited-released Bob Roll-inspired Let's Ride. It was initially released in 2012, cult favorite. These are super classy, but also super low quantities. If you're an admirer of Bob, or of ostriches for that matter, you better hurry over to roadid.com slash B-O-B, Bob, before they're gone. <laughs>